When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. One day in the pub, Seb and Verity were socializing with hilarity. They knew there and then that their options were vast. They bought some equipment and made a podcast. What do you think? Seb Philpott. And I am Verity Simmons, and this is Three in a Bar. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, <laughs> thanks for joining us again, listeners. This is the podcast where we chat to a different musical guest each week. And yep. this week <gasps> it is British countertenor, widely recognised as one of the world's finest singers, celebrated for the beauty and technical dexterity of his voice <gasps> and intelligent musicianship, Yestin David. Wow, he's got a heck of a long name, hasn't he? <laughs> That's his full name. Critical recognition of Yestin's work can be seen in two Gramophone Awards, a Grammy <gasps> Award, an RPS Award for Young Singer of the Year, the Critics Circle Award, and recently an Olivier Award nomination. He was awarded the MBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours List 2017 <gasps> for services to music. I could carry on, that's all I can remember right now. <laughs> that's an awful lot to have on the tip of your tongue, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think he's got a website somewhere you can look this stuff up. Yeah, but, props, um, props. I haven't, I haven't found it. Uh, so yes. I was actually at school with Yesin as well. <laughs> yeah. I was. Sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to do that. It just, it just came out. I liked it. Um, yeah, but it was like 23 years ago. And actually, when we were at school, you'll find this hard to believe. I yeah. couldn't really, I was very shy and I didn't really talk very no. much. So I know really, really. And so I knew Yestin, but not massively well. And it was just great to chat to him now, 23 years down the line. Yeah. Oh, he's a very funny man. Very he is. Good. He's hilarious. Nice bloke. Um, he's such a good musician. I'm sure you would have heard him, uh, guys. Mm. Uh, or check him out if you haven't. You probably have heard him, not maybe not realised, or you have realised, and you're a massive fan. He's got. He's such a musical singer, such a technically sound singer as well. Yeah, really, really inspiring to listen to. 
Um, we'll link to some some of his uh, records down below. Yeah. In the des- description, so you can, after this you can check him out. But uh, what did we talk about? Oh, well, we so much. It, it was yeah. We chatted a bit about his singing, but we did also chat about well his frustrations at this lockdown. We sort of avoided that quite often in our chats, but it seemed it seemed appropriate when we were chatting. Just his frustration at not working because he yeah, should yeah, have yeah. been at the Met singing the oh. title role in Julius yeah. Caesar. So you that, know that very evening that we recorded. Yeah, we were meant to do it in sort of like. Uh, 11 o'clock in the morning That's or right. something and then I had something I oh god I need to move it and then uh I just said can we do it in the evening and it was like yeah sure like yeah. as if that ever weird, would it? happen usually weird like, that someone you know yeah. of um of his uh, stature yeah. in the uh, in the world of music to just go yeah you're free in an <laughs> evening yeah yeah exactly meant to be uh the met but whatever <laughs> We also chatted about Lent, didn't we? And we chatted about Farinelli and the King, which was the play that he did with Mark Rylance uh, yes. on Broadway and in the West End and at the Globe. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He does an excellent impression of Mark Rylance. Yeah, he does. As well as various other people. He's really good at impressions. <laughs> he is. He is. Yeah. Possibly a second uh, second career oh. if... Uh, if this one doesn't work out. But it's going, it's going, it's it's going, going all right for him though, isn't now, it? <laughs> I feel like we should mention just yep. there might be people that might find this a bit um a bit distracting or annoying. He does eat some food quite um Oh he does way through this. Quite early on he discovers he's got some sausage which he's uh, prepared <laughs> and he just nibbles that for, for quite a long time. But you know, just just ignore it or um <laughs> Or maybe that's your thing. Okay. In which case, enjoy maybe you it. Like it. <laughs> yes. But I will be checking out that sausage from yeah, me too. Marks, Marks and Spencers. Yeah. <laughs> we'll link link to the uh, sausage down below. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, should we check it out? Should we listen to the whole episode? Come on, let's do that. And if if you enjoy this episode, there is a bonus episode which we have on our Patreon. So yes. again, link down below. Check out our Patreon. You can join from as little as £3.50 a month. Yeah. And you get uh, bonus episodes with every guest. Yeah. Uh, this one's a sizable one, so it's well it's worth it. It's quite a big it. one, yeah. yeah. We chatted for ages, didn't we? We did. Let's go and listen to the chat we had with Yestin Davis. <laughs> Yestin, what are you actually doing to fill your time at the moment? Because it must be quite peculiar you must usually be on a ridiculous schedule is this is it strange having evenings back <laughs> this time around it's really annoying last year was it was welcome because it was there was that sense of optimism with summer and well spring and summer and also we just thought oh this won't go on for long i mean <clears throat> this time last year pretty much i was in an opera in new york and i was being interviewed by michael cooper of the new york times and we'd heard this sort of little on the little whisper on the grapevine about this pandemic thing coming on the horizon and I was very concerned that the Met Opera were going to close down for maybe two weeks and then reopen and I thought oh they're going to do it just as our show opens I know it um little did we know but anyway we did finish our show last year March the 7th and I got home so I I I, you know that was really welcome because I got paid and then had a holiday um as it were which was nice but this time around it's really boring because i'm meant to be in new york now for two months and then canada for two months and that's all gone so and that's a huge i mean i obviously i'm not the only one and lots of musicians in the same position but i think for singers we 
depending on what you do, but you, I mean, as a counterturn, I divide my career up between opera and concerts and recitals because the voice type lends itself to all of those things rather than say, you know, a, a Wagnerian tenor who might only sing Wagner opera and they're screwed at the moment big time because they just have millions of people on stage and that's impossible and they're paid a lot. And so in a sense, it's a bit like having your main job just taken away from you. Um, and then, you know, the concerts and things like that are kind of like the decoration around it. So you kind of rely on a couple of operas a year, two months a year and you, you get, or four months, two months of time. So, you know, that's the, sort of the big money comes in. You think, okay, now I can either take a break or not. And I know I rarely take a break. So it was really nice last, last year, but now it's really annoying because, because also we've just, I don't know how you feel about it, but, um, and I don't want to be depressed in this whole podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> you asked um it's just very difficult at the moment to have any optimism because you feel like last time everybody was like all the organizations who were um promoting concerts and and booking you were kind of really eager to find ways to do it and we did that and in the autumn it was like yeah we know how to do this and then the government were like here's some money and then it was like yes you can travel and you can come through customers that have to you know it's all going well and then they said, here's a vaccine. And they go, and now lock yourself in a cupboard forever. And now it just feels like everyone's like, well, we've been there. We've, the optimism's gone. Uh, we've kept all the money the government gave us, and we're not going to give it to anyone And because we need to keep our offices open, which is understandable. And everything in the future is like, well, we've been here before. We don't risk booking anything in case it doesn't happen. Um, but today I had a flurry of emails about work later on in the year, which is fine, but it's also really depressing because quite a lot of it's stuff that's being postponed. And now I can't do it because it clashes with something else that was already in the diary. And you know what's going to happen. The thing that's already in the diary is going to be cancelled and the other stuff is going to give, go to someone else. Oh, so God. Um, I've just been thinking of alternative careers, running that coffee shop. I never did, you know, things like that. <laughs> but so was it Julia? I'm going to pronounce this completely. I'll just say Julia Caesar in Italian. Yeah. Julia okay, Cesare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Um, that's, that's what I was meant to be doing. Gonna, yeah. yeah. Were you going to be doing that at the Met and then in Canada? Or was it two different No, programs? two different operas. I mean, the, oh God, this is awful. But the Met was the title role in Julia Caesar, which for all counter centers is like, it's just full of great music. And it's a title role, you know, and then only in concert. So I was kind of really buoyed up for doing it for the first time there. And then um, in Canada, Canada, it was, it was Gluck's Orfeo and Eurydice, which is so, and I've done that a couple, during the Edinburgh Festival, I've recorded it, and it was just seemed all the right time to do this kind of stuff. And at this stage of my career, it was like, it's it's kind of one of those pinnacle things you do, and then you think, it doesn't matter if I don't do it again, but it might lead to more of them, but at least you've kind of, it's like the sort of climactic point, it's just completely taken away. And these opera companies have to look after themselves, first and foremost. So, you know, Canadian Opera in Toronto, they've just said, oh, we're rescheduling it for next January. And they didn't check whether we're free. I can't do it. So I get I get some compensation and they just find someone else to do it. And I'd like, I, I don't want the compensation. I want to sing the bloody opera. Yeah, too right. Because, yeah. you know, it might not come come along again. And then you think, well, you only live once. And it's, it's times like this that you realise why you do the job. Massive. I think all musicians have been sat at home saying, what is it that we miss? We miss an audience that massively, because that's that completes the circle of music, you know. And... Yes, it's about the money to some extent, but it is also about the fact that you, if you really didn't enjoy all the other things, then you probably wouldn't be doing this as a job. And I miss all that, just those opportunities to do things that you've worked towards and you think, you know, you can't put a, a value on, or you can't put a 
price on the, the feeling of doing something like that in in the sort of opera house like the Met or something. Just be able to tell your grandchildren all that kind of stuff. God no. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Woo. It's a great yeah. time for us all. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I'm finding it quite hard, actually, at the moment, because it's. I'm just missing, I think it's much more, it's really weird at the moment, and really kind of quite depressing, The uh, this part of it, isn't it? Because, as you say, it was kind of optimistic. You're kind of coming up with, like, creative ideas, or oh, I could do stuff online. Um, but now I just, I really miss that Um really misconnecting with with audiences just yeah. getting a mm. bit of applause each night yeah. it's good isn't it we get so used to that yeah definitely um, but just working with with friends on creative projects and and I, I think everyone's sort of lost their kind of mojo like practicing mojo or just any kind of <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not really practicing at the moment. I don't know no. about you guys. I haven't. I my last <laughs> bit of singing was a Messiah in the Barbican on December the nineteenth, and I thought I was going to be doing a concert at King's Place at the end of January, and that's been pushed back to May. And then there was, n- and then I was meant to be in America, so I haven't sung a note since <laughs> December. And the next thing I have to do is in March, and uh, I just this is like one thing, and it's like. <laughs> and you kind of think, <laughs> like, do I need to warm up? Yes, probably because I have no stamina. It's terrifying. Um, but you say so you what you said, Seb, about you know not not the applause and stuff. People think that sounds ridiculous when you, you know. You think, oh, <laughs> but actually, it's so true. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said it. It's we're so used to that. I mean, yes, you take it for granted, and you know you sort of go, oh, the audience was this and that tonight. But it is that <laughs> yeah. kind of it's that feeling that. The you know this the old thing of sitting around a campfire and somebody telling a story and there's that circle of people and it connects all the way around. If you don't have the people there, it is just in a way it feels like you're singing into into a sort of echo chamber into into a vacuum or whatever. And the concerts I have done where they've been streamed but they've kind of really formal. So I did a recital back in June at the time when you thought oh, everything's going to go back to normal, but it was completely empty in the Widmore Hall. And the whole thing felt like an exam. We were kind of, we said, I said afterwards, why do, why do I still feel tense? Usually I sort of enjoyed it. And it was good, but I was like, and it, it was because there was the, the radio producer sitting there, his tweed behind the sort of a microphone. And then John Gahooly on the other side, listening intently. And it was two men listening to you. And you thought, <laughs> yeah. just any moment now, they're going to ask me for B flat minor continuity. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I'm back in. I'm back in my grade eight piano exam, saying, "Okay, this is the very one I didn't want you to ask me to do." And then I did it. And then he said, "Would you like to try that again?" I said, "No." I got a pass. And Mr. Young, my piano teacher, said, "You need to retake. You need to retake it." Um, but it was that feeling, and it just. And then I did one at the Wigmore in December, and there was an audience, and it was so nice. There were five of us on stage, and. Um, it was just, we were all kind of like, it was just so good to play music together. I, I couldn't have given a toss if I'd been paid or not. It was just so nice to sort of yeah. just do something. Oh, look, I've cut some sausage I forgot to eat. Sorry. Um, <laughs> what it's, you got? I've got into M&S, so I just didn't advertise. Time for some adverts, everyone. Yeah. M&S, okay. the baton. Um, <laughs> it's a really wonderful sort of spicy sausage. Um, and it's one of those things that it makes a good aperitif. Um, although I'm having this after dinner. But yeah, either but I way, see that you've got that to complement a nice glass of wine there as well. Oh, I gave up for that? Lent, but... 
<laughs> oh, sorry, not a glass of wine then in that case. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's grape juice. In, of course it is. No, it's a lovely Burgundy. <laughs> the thing is, the problem is, is that when you make, well, I think, A, we should just give up Lent this year. It's crazy. But Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I had this bottle sitting around and I was going to drink it. And then I thought, I'll give up for Lent. And then I remembered that I had it and I thought, I'd better finish it. I'll start it. So I will finish it. Anyway. I've given up. Um, sorry, can we just carry on with the length chat? Just, oh, you're uh, very keen to, to say, to aren't you? <laughs> I, no, I just, I, I want, you know, I, I've given up cream eggs because I've got a bit of a problem with cream oh, eggs. Oh, my God, that's massive. But it's in a way, big, that's completely right because cream eggs come out too early because they are for Easter. Yeah, they come out sort of 1st of January officially, I yeah. think. Um, but... Yeah, I, I've I've had too much already. I've I basically I average about four or five a day. Seb, I'm really worried. What? I'm, it's too many. I'm isn't really it? worried about what's going to happen though after Lent when you start back again. Like <laughs> mm. something very bad's going to happen. I know. I'm get, it's going to be like Alan Partridge when he drove to <laughs> yeah, yeah, in his bare feet with the uh, Toblerone. Well, yeah. I um, you say cream egg. One of my earliest memories of being kind of shocked was in my pram. <laughs> And being pushed yeah. into into W.H. Smith's and seeing like the the kind of big bargain bin of cream eggs and yeah. saying yeah. to my mum, I want one of those. She said, No, 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 no. She never gave me sweets or anything. And she was like, No, no, you won't like it. Won't like it. I was like, Yeah, have it. Have it. And so she she kind of acquiesced and gave me one. And I peeled it and bit into it. And then I just burst into tears because it had the white center. I love them now, <laughs> but I was so yeah. afraid of food that at three, I was like, what is this horrible thing you gave me? Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're expecting. Like, were you expecting an actual egg or like? I know. A, I think I thought what? of that. It was like this, it, it had that kind of rancid quality of a real sloppy egg, <laughs> yeah, even though t- texture, um, <laughs> even though it looked like a big solid nugget of chocolate. I was expecting mm. it to be. I don't know. I was only three. Come on. Anyway. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then that well, was all anyway. cured when I went to boarding school at eight and we had tuck shop. It was like... Ah. Oh, my um, God, yeah. Um, so anyway, but the point is that the, mm. the French baton sausage, saucisson yeah. um, kind of thing from M&S, very good. And it comes in a sort of two-foot-long thing and you could just chop a bit off every day. But, it, I mean, I look at it and it's basically like the surface of the moon. It's just full of white bits of fat. And, <laughs> yeah. and I just wonder whether that's any good for you. Oh, I'm sure well, it is. I think it's totally necessary at the moment, to be honest. Mm. I, ate, I ate four pork pies in the car on the way Did home you? just now. You are Alan Partridge. <laughs> <laughs> From a petrol station as well. Yeah. <laughs> Lynn, can you come and collect, collect me? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, yeah, I've found the real sort of, you sort of shove them between your legs and then you've got to just like... If you're keeping second gear all the time, you don't really have to change gear. You can just keep eating. What sort of roads course. were you driving down that you're in oh, second all sorts, gear yeah. all the way? M25, <laughs> uh, the woods. Uh, <laughs> Norwich Ring Road. Driveway. Yeah, yeah, quite. That's right, a gyratory. <laughs> oh, well, at least you can do that. I can't drive, so, I mean. Oh. oh Although I'm going to learn, and I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn an automatic because, A, it's yeah, quicker and easier. Mm. Um, and also everything seems to be heading to battery cars and stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. We just seem yeah. to be way behind everyone else going, oh, no, it's really interesting changing gear, whereas Americans just pedal down. <laughs> yeah. So so does that mean that you've just basically been doing circuits round and round York currently then, on foot? On foot. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. I have a bike. I have a really nice sit-up-and-bed kind of Belgian bike, which is really good. Oh, nice. Um, oh. I'll ring the bell and, you know. Coast around. Oh, very good. Do you have a yeah. dog to go in the front basket or anything? Um, like the basket broke, actually, so it would be very dangerous for a dog. 
Yeah. <laughs> Just strap him on the front. <laughs> yeah. Not so Basket good. full of dogs and salami. <laughs> yeah. Salami is a recent thing. Yeah. And actually, it's made out of dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's one um, never done. Mm. So, Yeston, were you singing Counter Tenor when we were in the sixth form? Uh, or is it something you came to later on? It was around the sixth form I discovered yeah. I could do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I tell this story lots because people often say, How the hell did you discover you did that? Yeah. Because um, it's a weird thing. But anyone who doesn't know, a counterstander basically sings in a falsetto all the time. And if you, you know, if you don't know what your falsetto is, you often find it. Sometimes you you might find it if you're laughing at a joke that you find hysterically funny. You might just go <laughs> like that, and that just even that that's all falsetto. Verity does a sort of honking noise when she's laughing. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's her tenor. <laughs> yeah, if only I'd found it earlier. It's such yeah. a different life. Yeah. Um, I think in men it's like more obvious, but uh, <laughs> but women they probably have a falsetto. They do have a falsetto really, really high up that sort of yeah. area that um, that certain pop singers access. You know, the Christina Aguilera's and they go yeah. an octave higher. But yeah. I um, obviously my voice broke about 14, 15. It at the time you go through puberty as a boy who's just joined a a mixed school you're desperate to appear masculine and cool and stuff like that and so yeah. the idea that you were like a star trouble when you were 13 is not good and our school had you know big services in in Wells Cathedral and the choir would sing and the choir master of the school chamber choir at the time was um uh, a chap called Andrew Nessinger who is now who was the organ scholar when I was a chorister at St John's in Cambridge he's now back there as the organist and you know he's one of the greatest church musician in the country now um but at the time he knew me from when i was eight so he was like oh i'll get you to sing all the solos in front of the school at the at the school eucharist and i was like no <laughs> and i joined the school so i was thinking thank god they're taking communion when i'm singing because they're all busy lining up and bending down and taking things in their hand and eating so they won't hear me singing this beautiful schubert Anya's day but i was so horrified by all that and i couldn't wait to my voice to sort of break but i was relatively i still am i'm at five foot nine but i didn't i haven't didn't have that kind of growth spurt in the lower fifth or whatever. When you came back and everyone was suddenly really tall and you're like, oh, hi, why haven't I grown? Why haven't I grown? Um, <laughs> my voice has slid down. It didn't break overnight. So I kind of, I was kind of glad when I sang tenor on bass, but I never had any lessons. I just didn't enjoy it. And I couldn't really connect with that, that sensation that you get when you, you're doing something like singing well. And I was in a choir rehearsal school when I was in the lower sixth and I was really bored probably because I have ADHD or something. And, and I just started singing with the outer line because they had a nice part. And the, the guy sitting next to me um, said, oh, that sounds all right, actually. I said, really? It's, I said, it feels all right. He said, yeah, you should take it more seriously. I said, oh, okay. And that was it. So I just got in the car on the way home and said to my mum, I think I, I, I sang out and it was all right. I said, okay, go and sing to the choir master of the cathedral, Malcolm Arch, to see what he thinks. And it just sort of went from there. And I did, a, we had, I think for A-level, we had something like, I don't know, 0.5% of the exam was performance or something ridiculous like that. And so we had to pick something to perform on. I thought, oh, I'll do some singing. So I sang some Dowl and Lute song or something with piano. Um, and it must have been awful. And then I had to prepare something to apply for university. So I picked some Handelari and sang that. But I did I did sing at Counter Centre. But then, I, as you know, Verity, and as I know you want to touch upon, I also sang... Uh, kind of joke tenor in a in a pop band. At I school. mean, seriously, I've just it's I've just got it on the tip of my tongue all the time. 
Cage, you mean? Cage, yeah. yeah. The reason I- we were called Cage is because the uh, at the time of the 90s was the greatest era of music ever, yes. the Britpop era, was that everybody yeah. was called not... The 80s had been like The Cure, The Smiths, um, The Lars, and the 90s was all about just nouns. One so word, like, yeah. Blur, Oasis, sleeper. Pulp, yeah. Sleeper, Cast... <laughs> I could go on. And <laughs> and so we were thinking of names and it was all a bit crap. And then I think I had a phone call from, obviously not a text, but a phone call from the bass player in our band, Andrew Dutch, um, <laughs> who was also a great trombonist. He you know, went to Guildhall and stuff. Yeah. And he said, oh, uh, we I was just looking around my living room and I was like, ashtray and table. And, was like, and then he just said, what about cage? Because like a cage. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. And... <laughs> We didn't think about it in sort of S and M proportions and that kind of stuff, but the, some people did. It's it, now looking back, it's a bit of a goth name, you know. But but Cage just seemed to sort of I don't know, seemed to be like, that's cool. I was saying to Seb earlier that um, I really remember distinctly when you had that that photo shoot because I remember everyone going, oh yeah, I mean they're really going places. It's really good. They're doing so well. And in my mind, that photo shoot was like for somebody like I don't know. NME, uh, no, maybe no joke. It was- what you're talking about now, you need to say you can't just say that photo shoot. This was a photo shoot in Wells Cathedral, in, yes. the, in the Chapter House, which is one of the most beautiful buildings of any cathedral. It's yeah. a sort of dodecahedron octagonal meeting place of the chapter, and it's it's and it's got this central column which spans out in a kind of um, palm tree like arch to support the roof and blah blah blah. Yeah, and for Country Life magazine. Yes. <laughs> and so they I was just waiting and so they they were they were doing a piece on the school and they loved the idea as all PR cheap PR ideas is that something that looks weird um so they said do you, you know a band playing in the cathedral that's really weird and so Mr Bolton our school photographer Grant Bolton's dad um <laughs> took these pictures of us and we sort of we pretended to play our instruments in the cathedral and so there was no actual sound, <laughs> and we were just like, oh, yeah. And <laughs> I've still got them. Yeah. But the photographs were very useful because about six months into our existence, I was reading this magazine that's now defunct called Select Magazine, mm. which was kind of invented for Britpop. And there was an advert in the back page that said, are you between 60 and 21 male, and probably in brackets white, um, and... <laughs> Um, and you want to be famous. It was that blatant. <laughs> and we were like, yes. And so it said, send off a photograph and a recording of you guys, whatever, performing. So I thought this is pretty cool. So I cut out the pictures or the picture of us in the cathedral. And I did this, I stuck it on A4 and I did this very cool kind of like spider diagram with with arrows pointing. This is Gareth. He's the guitarist. He's also a horn player. He likes surfing. And then <laughs> this is me. And I'm a dick. And then, there, and, and then we put a tape together of us um, which we recorded in the percussion room and we just oh, basically yeah. banged through about nine songs and put them all on. And then we got the, <laughs> I was staying at a friend of mine's house and my mum rang up and said, um, if anyone listening, you know my mum, Verity, but my yeah. mum was sort of deputy head of the school and complex person, but she um, she was sort of, she took pride in everything I did. So oh. on one level, she was really excited by this conversation she was about to have with me on the phone. But on another level, she was really disappointed. So basically she rang up and said, why have I had a phone call from Sony Records? And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Ooh. And then she was like, how the hell are you going to go to Cambridge if you do this? And so <laughs> oh. it was like, 
oh, all the emotions. Yeah. And I said, I said, well, wow, this is amazing, amazing. And so basically, we got invited for audition at uh, at Epic Records or Sony mm-hmm. um, on Great Marvel Street at the time, and um, it was it was kind of you know, the X factor before the X factor kind of thing. Yeah. So it was the same. They had like a thousand people reply and they sifted through it and then they just picked four people they liked. And so we went to places with this guy, Gary Stringer, who ran the branch of Epic. And he said, look, I like you guys. Um, uh, it's between you and some guys from Wolverhampton, blah, 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 blah. And so that was, that was kind of, that photo really helped. Um, yeah. But we never performed live before then. And so we had this kind of mentor called Tim Byrne, who was A&R at the time but was going to be our manager. He now works for um, Simon, what's his face? Um, Cowell. Cowell. I follow him on Twitter, but he doesn't follow me. I'm like, remember me. Um, <laughs> but he he sort of came back to Wells and came up to the, we had a recording studio built at the time because music tech was a new big thing. And and we played through some songs and he sat us down and he said, look, I like these four. And then he sort of said, he said, this one with the right financial backing could be number one. Wow. And it was like it was like a sort of oh. weird. It was it was kind of like okay, that's good, but you said with the right financial backing, and suddenly we had yeah. this eye-opening how pop music works. Thing. Yeah, yeah. And he said he said next year I'm going to have two bands in the top ten, you guys and this other group who are like ABBA, and it turned out what? to be Steps. Um, no way. And he, man- he managed Steps. Um, as for us, what happened was he said work on these songs and send me another demo, and I did. He never really replied, and then he kind of rang him and he said, oh, "I've been in the car crash and all this crap." Yeah. Um, and then my mum intervened and said, "You've got to go to Cambridge and get your grades and stuff." And in a way, I think it kind of worked out for the best because yeah, we all went our separate ways. What was funny was that the guitarist Gareth he used to always get a headache and have a migraine, so that's not classic rock, you know. <laughs> it's like the guitarist who. You know, he was brilliant. He natural guitarist. He would have all the Eddie Van Halen solos in the wrong place. You know, Britpop songs, and suddenly he'd be noodling like Guns N' Roses or something. Slash would be like, Nah, it's not quite right. And then he'd say, I've got a bit of a headache, and go back to my dorm. And I was like, But we've we're we're, we're banned. We're rock and roll. It's hardly deserving. And then our drummer Sam Wedgwood, um, who was also a great trumpeter, went yeah. to the academy. And then went off to write pop songs for people anyway. And he's kind of got his own career doing that. He played for Jamie Cullum for a long time. And then yeah. Andy, obviously a great trombonist. And I went off and did singing as a counter completely different. Yeah. And I, I just imagine if we had done it, we'd have been like busted on McFly and sort of lasted for a bit and then it kind of imploded. <laughs> but it, yeah. was a, it was a really interesting experience. And I still, obviously, you still have those kind of songwriting capabilities in the back of your head. And I always think it'd be much more fun to just be somebody who writes or produces for somebody else. So um, maybe now's the time to start doing that. I don't know. I bet that was a great insight, though, like getting that kind of industry insight at that age. And then, so now, I don't know if you're dealing with, because you must have spent a lot of time dealing with PR and things like, you know, album covers and all that kind of thing. Did you it give you a bit of an insight into that world or no? <laughs> no, a little, a little bit. I mean, it was, in a way, it sort of revealed now how how lame the classical music industry generally is, actually. And most things like the PR industry. And I've done, I've paid for PR in the past and it it's to a point, it's kind of useful, but after a while, it's a complete waste of money because the way our industry works, especially in singing class music is that it's kind of fed by a few magazines and the odd thing, but it's not, it's not really, um, I think like pop music. So that is very much image led and 
And so in a way, it's not really about the music at all. It's about everything else. And then you have a, an album. Whereas in classical music, it's all about your really interesting German sacred music album, uh, which is only really interesting to the people who buy BBC Music Magazine, which of which there are about 8,000 people, maybe 10,000, whatever. And then, you know, they say, oh, well, you, you can't do another interview interview with the Time, Sunday Times because you did one last year. So you have to wait a bit. And it's like, I'm paying you to do PR, but I can't speak to these people again because the newspaper say it's too boring. Well, there we go. And so I kind of, I got this theory now really that in classical music, if you're young and beautiful, it's okay. And then after that, it's kind of not. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of a waste of time paying for PR because it will pay for itself if you're the hot new thing, because people always want to talk to you because hot new things or something is different is what drives classical music PR. What classical music PR avoids is, hey, you're, you're like 80 and you play the piano. It's like, it's not, it's not cool anymore. Yeah, it's not their thing. But <laughs> um, it used to be, I think it used to be mm. in the days of vinyl stuff, you know, that it was really image led and it was, people used to buy records a lot more and it was very much, I mean, friends of mine who, you know, in their fifties, not, not, you know, not sort of old or past it, but people who still sing now, but they said back in the nineties, they were taken in a limo to a recording session for Deutsche Grammophone. In a, they'd be recording a Handel Oratorio. There'd be five soloists, and all the soloists were treated, you know, paid big fees, and somebody picked them up from Deutsche Grammophone with a cap and, and drove them to the thing. And now you're lucky to get a sort of fee. Yeah. Um, and obviously you make your own way on the on the Northern Line to St. <laughs> yeah, Jude's totally. or whatever. And, yeah. it's, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's like, were people irresponsible? I don't know what, what happened. It's yeah. it's kind of weird. But I was reading you you saying um, that uh, you have a very good relationship with your agent and what an important relationship that is. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's you have to be on the same page to make sure that you're shaping? Obviously, you do to make sure that you're shaping your career how you want it to go. And how much impact does having a really great agent for you matter? Um, well, for me, having a good agent right at the beginning was was completely what made the difference because I was still at the academy when I got an agent and it just meant that overnight they could open doors which weren't open by just going I'll finish my postgraduate degree yeah because the the music college system is very much protecting what they have so they're very much like we want to show you off we want and actually in my case they weren't like that at all they just didn't notice I was doing anything at all and then I got an opera contract in in Zurich and it was like standing in for the last three shows for somebody who couldn't do the last three performances. And I was suddenly having done nothing. I was doing three performances with no rehearsal with Nicholas Harnacore conducting. And, and this guy this really famous guy now, but at the time, nobody knew who he was. He was just like a rising tenor. And I was on stage. I think this guy's really good. And he's Jonas Kaufman. And it was like, and so that was what I was marked on for my finals at the Academy. And then I left a year early because I had a job at Welsh National Opera and stuff. But I remember the conversations at the time. It was like, well, if you go, it's a revival. You could keep your powder dry and wait and stuff. And I was like, well. And Jonathan Freeman Atwood, who was deputy principal at the time, said, well, it's an own goal, actually, if we stop you from doing the job. So maybe just go and do it. And I got, a, I got an agent who was, who was really uh, understanding because he'd been a singer at Cambridge. So he'd gone through the same system. And then he'd worked for John Eric Gardner and Monteverdi Choir on their 2000 bark tour and then he'd become an agent um he's now actually a priest which is quite funny he's a chaplain at st john's cambridge where i was he, he was great because he was really it was a, a van walsam agency at the time which didn't have a singers list and they they opened a very small singers list so they had like 14 or 15 singers on it 
And they took me on and he just said straight away, he said, look, you know, if you go and sing somewhere, I will fight for a certain fee for you. If you're singing with this consort over here, you'll only get a choral fee. If the audience see you appearing one day with a choir and the next day as a soloist, it's just confusing. And also we can't, we can't negotiate with the concert hall like the barber can say, you know, at that age, you say a thousand pounds for the Messiah. If he's getting paid 150, sing the chorus the day before. So he said, you can suddenly stop doing all that work and just concentrate on that. So that was a really good, having somebody back you for the first time was really good. But also that there was a holistic management side to it, which was that they, they were able to say to me, you can ring us any time, any day. And he came to auditions he would give feedback. He'd speak to whoever it was auditioning me. So I knew when it went wrong, why it was. Uh, it wasn't this kind of random thing that actors have where they go and there's another job I didn't get. And that was really good. And I think also being a countertenor as well, it's a bit like being a ballerina. The, the good days are kind of your beginning in the middle of your career. Um, because our voices don't change like some singers. Um, you don't kind of change repertoire. You sing the same stuff all your, all your life. So in a way, you're at the mercy of time slightly. So if you haven't really nailed it by your mid-30s, you're unlikely to have a career that's going to go on further because there won't be the audience to follow you. So when young singers come to me and say, what, you know, I, I want to get an agent, I always say to them, don't just plump for an agent because a lot of them just aren't the phone um, or they don't know how to manage your specific voice type. And agents are really good when they have, say, a, a kind of Rolodex of singers in their head, which is short enough to be able to talk about them all the time. So they'll be at a casting audition or talking to a producer and that producer will want somebody. And they say, oh, by the way, I see you've got this in your season. We've got this new singer who da 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 And that's that's kind of really where, where it really works. And I saw a lot of singers who got signed up to big agencies and they were swamped by them and they just don't have time to look after them. And they the first five years of their career were spent sort of kind of eating the crumbs from other singers. And then they got dropped because they didn't the numbers didn't add up. And I think they probably do have those kind of meetings where they say, right, what are the numbers for this year? We just don't know about it. Did you have... Um sort of uh, role models that, that were countertenors yeah who are your who did you listen to and look up to i wasn't one of those people who went oh, i i really want to be this person this person and that's why i'm going to sing countertenor i started singing countertenor and then our head of composition at school richard baker he said to me oh you've got to listen to this cd it's uh, this young german countertenor called andreas Scholl, and he's great and he gave me the cd it was him singing bach cantatas and I put it on. I remember the first time I listened to it, I thought, oh, okay, you know, I can't really remember my reaction, but I didn't go, I love it. And then I, I gradually started to really love it. And then I bought all his CDs. And then I was like, okay, this is really cool because he's kind of got it sorted. His technique seems to be flawless. His voice is beautiful throughout the range. And I now understand what repertoire he can sing that I could sing. And I just followed that path. And then, so that was at about 1999. In 2011, I sang with him at the Met. And so it was like, it was so 12 years later, it was like, um, I'm standing next to him. And then we did, we've done duet concerts and stuff like that. So in a way, for the second time in my life, I'll go on to the first time, uh, was there was somebody I thought, it, it's not so much an idol, but I sort of fixed myself. I thought, I want to do what he does. I want to be able to say to an agent, I'd like to be a soloist who ensembles ask to, let, let's do a tour and stuff like that. And, and I saw what he did and I thought, yeah, I want to emulate that. And he sort of, you know, as a German, he'd been to the same, he'd sung in, you know, the Carnarvon core and stuff like that. And and in a way, he wasn't out and out an opera singer or just a, a lute song singer or something. He kind of 
partly because he had a very beautiful voice. He could fit all the all the all the genre as as it were. My first idol when I was six was Alan Jones. And I think anybody at that age in the 80s would go, wow, look what he's doing. It's really cool. So I learned to I learned to sing by copying his tapes and stuff. And I met him and I told him about I don't know, 10 years ago in a hotel in Liverpool, I bumped into his parents at the at the lobby reception and he'd been singing in White Christmas um, on the Liverpool Broadway or whatever. And um, I said, oh, Mrs. Jones, uh, you don't know me, but I remember watching a documentary where you were answering the phone and booking him gigs in 1985. And, and it's like, and they said, oh, he's coming down the stairs now. And so I said, <laughs> oh, Alex, nice to meet you and blah, blah, blah. He said, oh, you're probably much better than me now. But it was, it was kind of touching in a way because I did genuinely completely copy him. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think it's really good. Lots of people say don't listen to too much singing because you don't learn to sing if you imitate. But I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for imitation. If you, if you hear oh, something yeah. and then you imitate it, you know how it feels. And it, they, yeah, I can't remember who is the philosopher or the psychologist. You, the quote is that experience is the architect of the brain. And if you experience something... It really does. The, the the neurons connect, and I think that's for singers especially. It's it's like talking. If you as a baby, you listen to sounds and you copy them, and then when you know how they feel, you know how to produce them yourself. Um, that's a really important thing to have a kind of an idol as a goal. You think oh, I want to be like that because you never will be exactly the same as them, but in your head you are. And then sometimes somebody says, "Oh, you remind me of Andre Scholl, or you remind me of Alan Jones," and you think, "Oh yeah, that's funny," because I actually thought about them. Do many people say to you that you that, that you remind them of Alan Jones these days? I mean, not anymore. I no, <laughs> not he's a very moment. different person. Yeah, quite quite different. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine, like, also having obviously, yes, you got Alan Jones as a, as a massive idol to you at the time. They're just an idol, um, not a massive idol. Oh, just a, yeah, that's <laughs> massive, the biggest. The b- <laughs> but then, I guess if you're a young chorister, you yeah. probably you're practicing, you're singing. Like and maybe you're not thinking of it as practice. You're just singing and doing mm. services and rehearsals. Probably like loads, aren't you? Like so you're yeah. It was seven days that, a week. Yeah, seven days a week. So so you're at the same time as having this inspiration. You've also got this just learning the craft of it and and listening to others around you and and then you're kind of hearing what you like amongst that as well. You learn through yeah. osmosis. You basically absorb yeah. the sound. I mean, when I was, I remember vividly when I was eight, the choir master was sort of terrifying because he used um, shame as a way of making things better. So if you did something wrong, he would shame you. So you thought, I don't, I don't want to be shamed. So I will be right. I will, I will not make a mistake. And so you learn very quickly to assimilate, you know, what it is to be good. And I stood next to two senior boys, one on either side with 13. One had a voice that sounded, I didn't like it. The other one had a nice voice and I thought, I'll copy him. So you just immediately kind of go, right, I need to adapt and be a comedian and all that kind of stuff. And then I suppose as a process, you just, you start to, to, to copy that sound. You have to do it in a certain way. And there were, there were, you know, you tripped up along the way. I remember singing a service and we were doing some anthem by Gibbons and it was a, there was a bass and treble solo at the beginning and it, it just one of those things just started and the bass sang and then I just in canon just came in and I was just daydreaming and I completely forgot to come in. I was about nine and I was there and I suddenly went, oh, I don't And I remember the <laughs> choir master, he waited at the end of the chapel, at the end of the service and we processed out and he was standing there in his parka jacket behind the statue of Wilberforce and he looked at me and I thought, oh God, I'm in trouble with Dr. Guest. And he came up, he said, I'm never, ever giving you a solo ever again. 
And then two weeks later, he realised there was only about four of us who could sing nicely, so we got it. <laughs> but it was that thing of you thought, oh, my God. And actually, to be honest, it stuck with me for the rest of my life. I, I'm really, you know, not to sound like this is a therapy session, but it's a massive thing for me. Fucking up in public is really, I find it really terrifying. So I just don't. And, and if I have, it's, it's, I've, it's really attached to shame and stuff. And it's not necessarily a healthy thing, but it's driven me to do what I do because I, I just can't abide like messing up. It's really embarrassing. It's very English, but it was because of that. It's for me, it's not about getting a really good technique. It's about not fucking up in public. And so it, it's sort of good, but at the same time, it's annoying because when it goes well for yourself and then you read a bad review, you kind of, I find irritatingly getting irritated about the review and you think actually that's really, it's stupid because reviews are reviews or whatever, but that person, the, it's like you want to say to the reviewer, you don't realize how not wrong that was because when I did it wrong, I knew about it when I was eight and now I did it right. I know it's right. And I know if, if that choir master was here now, he'd say that was really good. And you just told me it was bad. So this doesn't make sense. And it's it's not a healthy way to live, but it is it is one of those men, it's one of those many hangovers from you know being sent to that kind of institution at eight. You you do you do have to kind of look after yourself. But then that fear of um that fear of messing up and stuff, then does that does that ever link with nerves? Do it, like does that ever get into your head or are you quite good at like having something come down before you go on stage? Like can you I it, it's really funny you say that because I think generally it was it's fine. Yeah. But as you get older, and also you encounter kind of things that you just have no control over. So, for yeah. example, the two things. Firstly, the one thing which was pretty major for me was about I don't know, 2013, 14, I started to experience really weird periods of being a bit knackered when I was singing very quickly. And I was really confused by it. And at the same time, a few friends of mine started experiencing the same thing who were older and they discovered they had hiatus hernias. And uh, so a cousin of mine, and that's another amazing story, so I'll tell later on, but a cousin of mine called Neil Davis is a bass baritone who's about 56 now. Um, he was singing operas and stuff and he said, oh God, I came off stage tonight, I had no voice. And then half an hour later, his voice came back or he'd be singing for 20 minutes and he'd just find notes cracking in the weird place. And there was no kind of explanation on the vocal cords and that. And then he had a endoscopy and discovered that his stomach had, had sort of entered his esophagus and was sitting through the hiatal sphincter. And that's basically it. And you don't really feel it. You get heartburn and, you, you know, you're taking Gavascon and stuff like that, but you don't realise that it's kind of caking the vocal cords in acidic vapour. And especially at night when you're lying down, it's tipping back. And it became a sort of pattern. There were three or four people I knew had this. And they all went to this surgeon who, who did this operation where you pull the, um, with keyhole surgery, you pull the stomach back down and then make a second um, hiatal sphincter at the top. So you've got two to protect the um, the stomach contents from going back up. And uh, my cousin, Neil, he completely, it was like night and day. You have to have two months off because you've had keyhole surgery and stuff and your muscles don't work. But afterwards, he was like, it was so refreshing. And as if, by again, by osmosis, I got the same thing. And I realised that I was doing an opera at Glyndebourne and we were rehearsing and I'd, I was so embarrassing. I'd sing like an aria and halfway through, I'd just be like clearing my throat and constantly going, <clears throat> just feel like I always had phlegm in my throat. And often when I sang something loud or fast, 
um, because the diaphragm is working away and you're just pushing stuff up. Um, and so I, I just went to see the surgeon. I said, I've, I've got a feeling I've got this thing. And he, he did an endoscopy and I was under the, under the Valium and I sort of woke up and he said, yeah, you have the same thing as your cousin, you know, it's pretty serious and we can get it sorted in two weeks. So I went private, got it done, took two months off. And then I went back to Glyde 2015 and did this handle saw. And it was like, it was totally brilliant because I could just rehearse. And then we got to the tea break, I go off and I come back and I was warmed up rather than completely knackered. And those sort of things, you know, you don't have, lots of people have hernias, they don't realize. And I think if you have an office job, people would say, oh, I've got heartburn, but they can live with a hernia for years. And the guy who was in the operating table before me, um, the surgeon said, sorry, we're delayed. But the guy before you, his stomach was so far up his esophagus, it was nearly at his heart. Oh my God. He had to be so careful at pulling it down. It took an extra hour to get it down. And about 40%, 40, 50% of people do have hernias in their lifetime, but you can sort of live with it. But as a singer, you you just can't because it just completely knackers you out. So that's one thing. The other thing is just age. And I think, I don't know what it's like for instrumentalists because obviously you get Alfred Brendels and stuff, you carry on forever. But but as a singer, it's like change blindness. You don't look in the, you look in the mirror every day. You don't notice yourself changing. And then you look at a photograph and you're like, oh my God, 20 years ago. And singing's like that because you live with your voice and it is you. I remember hearing singers like Andreas Shaw, who I sort of idolised and wanted to be like stuff, hearing his change in his voice. And I, from working with him, I noticed just in his personality that he might not have heard it. Um, and yet I could hear it. And I suspect that's the same with me because I've been this for like 15 years now. Um, and I do sometimes listen to a recording or a radio broadcast from 12 years ago. I think, mm, that sounds really easy. <laughs> or that's weird. I saw I'd be worried about that now. And it does, it, it sort of eats you up slightly because you suddenly get that thing that uh, you, you're aware of the ex- expectation, which might or might not be there, but you you aggrandize it slightly and you think, oh my God, I'm performing at the proms because they know who I am rather than I'm the new thing, they don't know who I am and so everyone's going to like you. And, and it's completely stupid and it's just mind of matter, but it does really affect you. And actually, funnily enough, those kind of things give you acid reflux because you get really nervous and then you, you start over. And I had, I've had a couple of experiences which are horrific where I was doing a prom a couple of years ago and it was a big kind of handle oratorio. And I was really relaxed and I was really enjoying it. And then we went on stage and I just suddenly had, oh my God, it's like 4 billion people and it's live on the radio. And I just, I felt like I was completely on my own and I just couldn't enjoy it. And I got to the interval and I rang my cousin. I said, I think I've got a hernia again. I mean, I said, all my low notes have gone. I'm stressing out. And he said, it sounds fine. I'm just singing on the radio. It's all right. And I was like, okay. But it was, the whole thing was horrible. And that's happened more and more as you get older, um, which is quite a thing to admit, because of course you're going to keep your cool, but um, people don't tend to notice it, but you notice it so much more. So uh, whatever your question was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Often when I've sung to people, a bunch of people I know are kind of not necessarily knowing what they're going to expect. It's quite exciting because they're always a bit like, whoa, <laughs> you look like a man. And then you <laughs> sang like that. Um, uh, and that's always good, you know, because you, know, you go off at the end and you have a reception. They're like, so, uh, w- well, the thing is, well, I've got my wife, what do they know? Uh, <laughs> like, yes, I have balls. It's fine. <laughs> Just say it. We'll get it out there. Do you get but, that question yeah. a lot then? I got um, once or twice. It's been quite funny, but the, the one time it's been, <laughs> it's happened twice now because the the royals are spectacularly bad at 
inventing new questions, but if you perform things at Westminster Abbey, often you get royals turning up. And Princess Alexandra, who is kind of in the music biz, she turns up to things like that, we got introduced to her after a concert, some Purcell centenary, and she came backstage and we all had to stand there and sort of shake her hand. And she's, you know, probably one of the sort of chain-smoking royals who's quite cool, but she said, she's kind of said, does it hurt? And tapped her throat like this. And I was like, does it sound like it hurts? <laughs> I thought I, I thought we're on the same level. And she goes, yeah. <laughs> And then she said the same thing about three years later. Oh, <laughs> does it hurt? I said, no, it still doesn't hurt. <laughs> when you got your MBA, um, did, yeah. did, did, did they ask you that then as well? Or was that, no, was that their Charles, line of questioning? Oh, it was Prince, Prince Charles. Charles. Actually, I had Chucky um, and he, he was quite cool because he, that he, the talent they have is being told something in the ear and then repeating it yeah. for millions of people in front of them, uh, who most of them they don't know. And and he was very cool because he came up and said something about, he, he said, I'm terribly sorry I didn't get to see Farinelli and the King, but I hear you're coming to give a command performance at the palace. And I said, are we? And he said, yes, it all depends on Mark Rylance being free. And I said, oh, wonderful, it's great. And then we were supposed to do this command performance and it never happened, of course. And... Um, and then I I I I planned this because my dad uh, I mentioned earlier was a cellist. When he was at Cambridge, he was there with Prince Charles, and they both played in Cums, which is Cambridge University Music Society Orchestra, and they sat next to each other. And yeah. I said to him, "My dad's here today," and he says hello. He sat next to you in Cambridge University Music Society Orchestra. He said, <laughs> "Goodness me, do send him my best." And um, and I, I sort of I did that thing of he's just over there. Like, <laughs> Can you, and you, your viewers can't see, your listeners can't see, but I was like, my thumb over my just give him a wave, Charles. Come on. Um, what was your dad doing at this point? Look, could you see oh, him? He was, he was sitting, uh, he was sitting with my sister. And the thing was, they, you're in the ballroom in, yeah. in um, Buckingham Palace and there's this military band playing a kind of terrible spot, Spotify set list of things like Where Are You Walk and then... Yeah. Um, Purcell when I'm laid in earth and then suddenly Mendelssohn and stuff and it's I'm really sorry whoever you are but it's not very good <laughs> it's, it's it's really like the one of their kind of oh god it's it's the awards day it's just like side read this stuff yeah. it's all a bit shaky and my dad was just sort of sitting there laughing it all laughing it all <laughs> up um but I'd been to another thing uh at the palace a few years before in 2011 they had some sort of jubilee kind of celebration they had all these people from the arts turning up and I had this crazy evening where I got very, very drunk and I got to speak to the Queen directly. Oh, God. And, oh. and, and I had the badge on saying, in my name, and I'm a counter-teller. And she came up and we were cordoned off in this like little sheepfold of five people and there were all these special advisors saying, get away to other... So somebody saw me and said, oh, yes, and how are you? And this person came in karate chopped them out and said, get out of the way, the monarch's coming. And, <laughs> and then the Queen totted up and she's so small. And she said, what do you do? And I was like, Honey, read countdown. <laughs> so I didn't. I didn't do that. I said, "Oh well." I'm and I was standing next to a friend of mine, um, who I'd known for a long time, called Martin Denny, who runs the Windsor Festival. And it was really funny because Martin got chatting to us, saying, "Well, I'm Martin Denny. We've emailed about the Windsor Symphony Orchestra." And she sort of chuckled, and went, "Oh goodness!" And I suddenly thought, "Oh, we're having banter with the Queen." And I started. I thought, "Well, I won't lead with that. I do this, and then she moves on." So I said. I completely brown nosed and said, I, I really enjoyed the music at the Royal Wedding, um, mm-hmm. which is William and Kate. Yeah. And she's and she said, um, Oh well, Charles had a lot to do with that. 
I said, yeah, I, I know he's musical because he sat next to my dad in Cambridge University Music Society Orchestra. And, she, and I said, you know, he played cello. And she said, oh, my God, he hasn't played cello for a long time. At which point I wanted to say yes, because he sold his cello to pay for the re-roofing of Kensington Palace. Um, <laughs> it, it was the one that, it was one that uh, the Prince Regent had, was that famous oh picture of playing. Oh, my God. Anyway, so we chatted away, and it was all these kind of, there was friends in common. So my choir master in Cambridge, Christopher Robinson, he had been the choir master at St George's Chapel, Windsor. So she knew him very well. And... I said, oh, we, we had his 75th birthday of the day. And she sort of chuckled and said, goodness, is he that old? And all this kind of stuff. And we were like, ha ha. And she's so <laughs> lovely. She's like Aww. speaking to a grandma. And she was really down to earth and cool. And just a completely different level from the rest of the royal family. Charles is sort of almost there. But, yeah. but I, you know, can you imagine the Duke of York doing that? And <laughs> it's just... <laughs> He shouldn't be allowed to talk is to that, anyone is that anymore. Andrew, Duke of York? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Andy. Um, Andy. But he doesn't, no sweat. Um, and no sweat, Andy. No sweat, Andy. But he, um, but she, she was so cool. And I spoke to her for about two and a half minutes, and I remember verbatim what I said to her. Oh. And and that was an evening where I met people like Jamie Cullum and stuff, and it was like whatever, you know. This was yeah. like the queen. And <laughs> yeah. so I kind of yeah. And the 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 really the downside of this is is that I had a bit of a drink, and. I was in the middle, a re- very end of rehearsals for an opera, English National Opera, doing uh, Benjamin Britten's Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. And we had some stage and orchestra rehearsals and they'd said, the director said, totally cool. You've got to go and see the Queen, but come back for the last half an hour. So I got back for nine, nine o'clock <laughs> until 9.30. And I came on stage as over and I was like, woo! And I was like, oh, it's so amazing. Talk to the Queen. And the next day, and then I was on a bit of a high. And that night... Um, the the composer Nico Mooley, whose opera Two Boys was on at the same time, yeah. is a good friend of mine. He invited me around for drinks, and we stayed up to about four in the morning drinking. And the next day, I had the most outrageous laryngitis, oh, and God. I don't know whether it's because usually staying. I think actually looking back now, it's to do with the hernia that, that I had the hernia at the time, and it often gave you the side effects of a light laryngitis. You ended up completely roasting your vocal cords. But basically, I missed the first night of the performance. Oh, God. So the opening of this show, it was nine days, five, six, seven days later, I just I got worse and worse. I did the dress rehearsal and practically lost my voice. And so the opening night, I mined and somebody sang from the side of the stage. It was so embarrassing. Oh, my God. And it's all because I got drunk with the Queen. Well, it didn't help. <laughs> I'm sure I caught a germ or somebody. Now I'm a, you know, a COVID aware. You yeah. think how easy it was to catch colds. People, you know, putting their finger bowl crisps and stuff and or like, you know, coughing over somebody or shaking hands with somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you wonder why she wears a glove. She wears a special glove to shake your hand and it gets burnt somewhere. Um, Prince Philip, on the other hand, stands in the doorway, and if you're not a girl, he doesn't shake your hand. <laughs> you walk past, he goes, yes, yes, and he goes, hello. Doing that show on Broadway, that mm. probably, was that the most intensive sort of thing you'd had to do, like work-wise? Yeah, do, yeah, it was kind of, thing. it was insane, because we'd done it at the Globe Theatre, and we did 11 shows, and I did about eight of them, because um, that's the, the number I could do. And then we did it on the West End, and the West End, was very soon after it was like half a year later so they said do what you can so i looked at the diary and i was like well i'm free and so i basically did everything i could and then suddenly i'd have two weeks off and so in a way that was quite good but then broadway we were just there and i was like okay i'll do no matinees because they're obviously preceding an evening show and i'll do the rest so i did six out of eight which was really hard because because there was no amplification and I was the orchestra 
of which, by the way, it was like six players and a harp scored in a balcony behind me. Um, you know, they're loud, but not that loud and very dry acoustic. The first two weeks of previews, it was sort of fine. And I got the rhythm of it. And then one night I had a drink and I was just tired the next day. And I suddenly, I was just singing on tired vocal cords for three months. And it just became really, really tiring. Um, and it was always like, I was always thinking I'm on 70%. And there came a period when I just thought, I don't ever want to do this again because there was, there was no, I had nothing to sing. It's a weird thing as a singer, because you think if you've got your techniques sorted, it's all fine, but weirdly you respond to the acoustic you're in massively. And that's why, you know, great orchestras like the Concert Cabal play well because they have a great acoustic. It's so easy to fall into that trap and you just think, Oh, I'm just singing to the acoustic I have. And then you start to believe your shit. And then you start, you start to listen to yourself when you're singing and you think, Oh God, this is awful. And I had a couple of, there was a couple of really ropey nights where I thought, Ooh, um, you know, I'd had to go to England for a week to do something else. And I came back and I said, Oh, I'll, I'll come back the night before and I'll do the show the next night. And I was so jet lagged. And I remember getting on stage and I was just like, my voice just didn't work. And the first thing I had to do in that show was basically sing this long note. And I, I determined how long it would be. It was just like an, an A. And I was thinking, uh, I've forgotten completely what it is. Um, <laughs> it's this aria by Porpora and Alto Jove. And um, he's going, Alto Jove, which is a classic castrato thing. They used to sort of sing long notes and like, ombra my ombra my And that was your kind of signature thing. And so I just walked on because Farinelli would, uh, the king played by my rights would just say, okay, let him sing. And then I just walk, I start the note off stage and then walk on singing it, which is always quite hard because there was nothing. I had a tuning fork and I just sing this note in dry space. And when you're in really good voice, it's really easy. But when you're nervous as shit and you've been on a plane, it sounds like somebody <laughs> who shouldn't be there. Like, <laughs> just let him sing. <laughs> and this happened and I was just like and then there's silence before the orchestra come in and there's silence where you hear everyone going oh wait hang on uh, and me going oh no sorry that wasn't uh, wait no I'm the singer and it's just uh, by show 100 or something that, that was so loud but I suppose to my not to my credit but to my favour was the fact that most people who went to this show in London and, and New York in a sense they weren't necessarily mostly a regular opera crowd so no they were always slightly kind of bamboozled by it anyway. And people would come up and say, do you do, what else do you do? And so it was always a bit like, well, I, this is my job usually. This is the odd thing. Um, but it's just the mentality to do that kind of thing every night. It's, um, I have huge admiration for actors. I don't know whether they have it easier because they have speech, so they can kind of improvise more and they can be more um, spontaneous with the, with the, the timing. Whereas were music, you doing much acting within the show? Um, I, yeah, I was pretending to be good at singing, um, but, <laughs> but I no, yeah. I did. There was no, I did no talking. There was a bit okay. of like yeah. facial grimacing and stuff like that. I mean, in a way, the 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 beauty of the the show was that when it was written, um, Claire Van Cabin, who wrote it, who is married to Mark Rylance, her her experience in in sort of plays and stuff had often been at the globe where musicians had performed in a gallery or off stage or whatever. So I think it lent itself naturally to that when we did it at the Sam Wanamaker, that was how she thought of it, but she never really worked out quite how this, this actor who playing Farinelli would also sing. So she just always thought, well, it would have a singer. But then of course, when you're presenting a play about 
music and music therapy and the power of a singer. You kind of need a singer on stage as well. And so it became this like, well, let's try you standing on stage next to Sam Crane, who was playing Farinelli. And so we did it and we looked quite similar and she cast it like that. But it's it's also that the beauty of it was that Farinelli was his stage name and he was all his real name was Carlo Broski. So in a way, when I sang, I was Farinelli and he was Carlo Broski. So that kind of worked like a weather vane. We kind of came on. But that meant I didn't have to do any acting. But there were a couple of scenes where there was sort of exchange of props, like a telescope or something. And there's when well, in, in fact it was just a telescope. And <laughs> and um it wasn't like a telescope, it was a telescope. Specific, as an example, yeah. I guess like a telescope or a sewing machine, it was a telescope. And I, and there was some, quite a few times when the telescope, it was one of those ones you pull it out in three bits and it would come apart. <laughs> and so I'd have to hand it over to him in two bits. And Mark Rylance, uh, by about show bit, a billion would get a bit bored and look at, through the telescope the wrong way around. And when you're, <laughs> when you're just used to sort of looking over and seeing him look through it and singing something, and he's looking through the wrong way and getting really confused as an actor, like <laughs> in a joke, and I'm the one making all the noise. It, and then you see everybody else laughing. The corpsing was kind of really, really good. And there was one time in the, in the globe, uh, in, the, in the San Monomaker theater, which is, if you haven't been to San Monomaker, it's, based on a design by Inigo Jones. So it's this late 17th century design. It's very small. And the the sort of the stall seats are really basic wooden stalls and everyone's packed in, wouldn't survive in COVID. And um, there was one night this young girl was sick and she she tried to she tried to stifle the vomit by oh, doing that thing of going mm, mm, oh. <laughs> and then she went Bleh! And was sick down her front and sort of onto the person in front, but nobody could get out because the show had been going for like 15 oh minutes, which is kind of the, by 15 minutes in, the latecomers are in, everyone's settled in, they sort of know what's going on. It's like, now we just sit through this. But then when someone's sick at 15 minutes, like, we can't break the, the magic. You've got to stay there. And so- <laughs> And people come off stage saying, oh, I remember Mark came off saying, oh, yes, a poor girl's been vomiting in the third row. Oh, well. And someone came and said, oh, the stench is awful. And I was like, okay, right. Oh, I won't breathe too deeply. Um, but we also oh, had this, we had this, it's just, it sparked all these memories. We had these two guys who didn't have speaking roles, but um, in London were kind of props people and stage managers, but also in the show. And they used to be like um, these sentries at a door. And one of them, Ollie, he would always joke about who was in watching the show because we get these celebrities coming to watch Mark Rylance. So in New York, we had Steven Spielberg and Whoopi Goldberg oh, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So I met all these people and I thought, yeah, maybe I'm the first countdown they've ever heard. Of. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but in London, it became this thing that we used to make up. He used to make, Ollie used to make up who was coming to the show. So he'd peek through the door and say, Gary Lineker's in tonight. And we were like, really? He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he definitely is. Because, of course, his wife's a musical singer. So, oh, that's quite believable. And he'd try and start a rumour that would go around the front of house. Because the great thing about theatre is that you know everybody in the theatre because it's not like an opera where you disappear for three days. You literally live with everybody. And so the the one person it became about was Chris Akabusi. And so (laughs) it was was Akabusi's internet. He said, no, he's not. No, no, I know we've been joking, but he is actually internet. No, he's not. He said, no, no, Chris Akabusi. I've seen him in in, in the auditorium. It's not Chris Akabusi. And it went on for four months. And then on my final night, there's a scene right at the end of the show where the old Farinelli is retired in Bologna and um, 
he goes to a tailor to get a coat made and the tailor says, oh, I saw you when you were younger and singing in Naples and I want you to sing this aria. Please sing for me. And he sings Lascia Kipianga. And I, I'm hiding in the background behind this harp in his attic and I stand up and sing this aria. But I'm right at the back by this door and on the final night, this laminated head of Chris Akabusi just appeared on the <laughs> door and started like sort of back and forth, Chris Akabusi. And I thought, Everybody in the in the gods can see Chris Akabusi's head coming on and off the stage, which is really childish, but it was kind of very very fulfilling. Yeah, but actually, I did. I had a real lesson in um, what it is to be, you know, famous or f- social media and stuff like that. Was that when um, Steven Spielberg came to the show in New York? He'd been to the show in London, but he came to it in New York, and he was there with his daughter and his wife and stuff. And and I said, could I get a photograph of you? And he said, yeah, of course. And we had this photograph. And I I did that normal thing of thinking, oh, I'll just put it on Twitter. Yeah. You know, wherever. It's pretty cool. Because, you know, when people came to the show, people tend to take photographs, put it on Facebook, say, oh, my God, I met... So I thought, <laughs> I'll just put this on. Because for me, that was, like, insane. Yeah. Whereas for people like Mark Rylance, it's like his buddy who he makes films with. And... <laughs> and I just this photograph and I put it on Twitter and I thought I'd better put a caption. So I said, This is me and Spielberg talking about the follow-up um saving Farinelli's privates. And because <laughs> it's you know the old saving Brian's yeah. privates, blah blah blah. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought nothing of it. I'd get a few laughs. I woke up the next day, because of course time is different in America from England, and it was in the evening standard in their diary column. Of course, the evening standard put tenor, yes, and Davidson yeah, got it wrong. And they put my picture up without asking me, and they just put the quote underneath. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. <laughs> and Mark Rylance <laughs> went a bit mental at me. So we, the next night, he said, oh, could I have a word? And I was like, <laughs> oh. he said, oh, my friend Stephen backstage, privacy. And I was like, oh. I was just oh, wanting to go, Mark, God. you're so oh, famous. No. It's my moment of fame. Just please let me have it. <laughs> oh. But I totally understood it because he's, Mark is the, he is like the most, amazing person to have as a member of your cast like if you ever need somebody to stand up for everybody and say it in the most justified way you know whatever whatever the we had a cast meeting every week and there's, whenever there's dispute about something he was just he's su- he'd make a very good politician i know he's quite political anyway but he's just incredible he's he's such an egalitarian about stuff we all had the same room to dress in so we didn't have individual dressing rooms none of that it was all around the same table and he just makes you feel so welcome. I mean, incredible human being, really. And just his ability to unite people is, is astonishing. It was so different from the world of opera and stuff like that. The idea that you were kind of all equal, even though he had star building and all that kind of stuff, it just had that feeling that everybody was important. And it not just that, we had a collection every week for all the backstage people and the and the front of house. So we he said, a suggested donation of 20 quid. So, you know, there's a cast of like, seven or eight putting 20 quid in and it went to the doorman and he was oh. like whoa i've got this tip which in america is kind oh, wow. of tips but they were just always they always look forward to working with mark riders because his money just piles in but it's <laughs> yeah. but it is it's i've i look back fondly on that the dressing room was such a good place we had table football table tennis there was i didn't get too social every night because i couldn't because i had to go to bed because i was singing but they you know the camaraderie every night there was something going on and the group of players there was a there was a quota of sort of 
English players like Chalice, Johnny Byers and Rob Howarth and Harp School stuff. And they just form this really tight knit group. And then they'd give concerts, you know, like the Irish reels and stuff like that. And they'd be like drinking and actors can kind of get away with that every night because they, I said, they're just speaking, but their voices kind of don't have to be beautiful um, in the way a singer does. It's that thing of going into a theatre and everybody in the building being knowing who everyone is. It's it's nothing like classical music at all. Yeah. It's really, but it also just the, the the brain power to do that every day as well. Do the same script over and over again. It's nuts. And we did it for four months. You know, not years. Did you try and uh, change things gradually to try things out? Because you don't usually get to repeat the same concert or recital. Yeah, I mean, actually, so. that's that's a really good question because often you think in an opera you might get the most I've ever done is like thirteen performances yeah. at Glyndebourne or something like that. And in a way, there's only so much you can do. It's all musicians know you, you, you're kind of at the mercy of the bars and the, and the speed and stuff like that. But um, there was a couple of personnel changes. So like the the director of music went home for a couple of weeks because it was his son's birthday. And so we had a new director of music, which also throws in a complete spanner. He's like, oh my God, everything's really slow. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, but ornamentation, rock music, you can do different things. Also, yeah. as I said, you just get knackered. <laughs> like, what the fuck can I do to survive? <laughs> and then um, and then you're just dealing with live audiences as well. You know, somebody coughing, something, anything can throw a show. In fact, one of the most memorable, um, not memorable in the wrong way, but my... One of we, we talked really earlier about the importance of agents. I had this brilliant agent at Askins Holt called Robert Rattray, who was the head of the singers department. He's in legend, he was legendary and he he managed so many great singers in the past. Simon Keenside, Thomas Allen, Ian Bostridge, you know, really took these people from the beginning of their careers to the end of their careers and or to the point at which he left. Um, and when he retired, he got this semi-advisory role at the agency. And then he got offered this job at the Metropolitan Opera. And he went over there and it was really great because I saw him loads in New York and it was always nice to have a sort of Brit abroad. And then during Farinelli, he had a stroke and died. And I remember being rung up by somebody and saying, Robert's in hospital, he's on a life support machine, but he's essentially 5% brain capacity, but they're keeping you alive to his cousin's going. And this was a Sunday and it was a massive shock. Um, and so I went to hospital and we went to see him and he looked completely right as rain but just, just you know his eyes closed and you just realize he that he's not going to come out of this and the monday we had no show and his cousins were coming over to kind of switch him off and then tuesday we had a show and then i knew that tuesday i'd seen him and the tuesday switched him off and i thought it's fine and i went to the cast meeting before the show and i remember mark saying oh you know first up i just want to say yes and we're really sorry about and i wasn't expecting that at all and i was like oh no it's fine you know in the english way it's like no no it doesn't matter and i music is always a really good i've found in moments of crisis singing and stuff like that is amazing amazing distraction it just it completely changes the way you feel about stuff and it was right at the end of the show and i had to sing lasha kipanga which is you know so heartbreaking anyway and especially in the story um and i just got to the last phrase and i was i i suddenly it was like i came upon myself and i thought wow, you've done the entire show and you haven't buckled at all. Now you're going to fuck it up. And the last note, I remember it just completely going, uh, and I just thought, oh my God, because he'd been to the show the week before. And it's that horrible thing where you, you, I, you know, I shouldn't have done the performance, but I did it because I knew I could. Um, but just that last bit, and it was horrible. And then, you know, it, after that, you're fine. But it's, it's those things when you change things, sometimes you just don't know what you're going to feel like in the moment. 
And then funnily enough, um, the when we did finally, just before, I'd been in New York for doing Tom, Tom Adders' opera, The Exterminate Angel, the premiere there. And that was shown on their kind of um, cinema broadcasts. And during lockdown the last year, they've shown a lot of those things for free. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> not paid anybody. No. But they're happy, they're happy to email us all and say, hey, it's really great, we're showing your show again, but not paying you anything. Um, and they showed The Exterminate Angel. And I we had a cast kind of Zoom watching it and laughing about it, and you because know, it was such fun. And right at the end... As the curtain goes down, the camera goes backstage and we're all walking off stage and Robert came on stage and you see him patting our backs and saying, well done. And I suddenly thought that was like October and in January he was dead. And I I wasn't, it was complete shock seeing somebody thinking, oh my God, they're there. Um, And New York hasn't been the same since really. Uh, It's just, it's, it's horrible. But um, yeah, it's, it's, but I think what I, the one thing I really touched upon in that was the, that, in moments of crisis in your life, music is an amazing um, therapeutic thing. And it sounds really obvious, but it really, it's like my first term at university, I remember I, I had a girlfriend from school and she went off to Oxford and I went to Cambridge. And then I remember she ran me up and said, I've kissed my college father. And I was like, no. And the entire <laughs> first term, I was so heartbroken. I spent oh, every no. in bed, but I got up singing even song. And when I sang, I didn't have a thing. It was like completely different. And then I stopped singing. I was like, oh, and I've always felt that like when you sing it, I don't know what it is. It just completely, it sort of absolves all that melancholy that you have. It completely takes away. It's an amazing thing, which I guess goes back to the beginning. Like how do you cope with this lockdown stuff? When you sing, you just realize that it makes you feel so good that you don't really care if people don't like it or you don't care if you're not paid. It just completely banishes everything. And you can be doing something you shouldn't be doing, like singing in the chorus when you think, oh, I'm so do but it doesn't matter. It's so rewarding. You know, I'm doing some Bach next month, next month, and we have to do the, the solos and it's with this group, Vox's 8, but we also have to sing in the chorus. And normally I'd be like, I haven't done that for ages. I have no stamina. But I was like, I love Bach being my mass is so fulfilling. It's so glorious and the it resurrects it and stuff like that just to be able to sing that and sit there and listen to it or whatever it's so good that it's just completely worth it you know i i would do it for free were it not for the fact that you know you got to pay bills i think i've got quite a good high range this is what he led well, off with today when we started but are you chatting. naturally a bass uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So you probably bass. do you probably do because i haven't yeah. as you can hear oh, right uh, yes well, yeah. um, I can sing quite high, I think, um, quite surprisingly high. Good. Can I just show you? Uh, yes. But, do, I mean, do you want to do it on the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? Go yeah. on. Okay. Uh, Go on. I mean... How high is that? Is that good? That's very... The thing, do you know what's interesting is that I haven't sung for whatever, the best part of two months, but yeah, I, yeah. I, can, I can do that as well. Yeah, but, but normally I can't. So I can go. But it's 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 weird. Once I warm up, it doesn't have. It kind of centers itself. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Oh. And so sometimes I wake up in the morning and I'm sitting in the shower and I go, oh, whatever. <laughs> That's sometimes really good. But it the, yeah, the yeah. it's there, and then you warm up and it's like, and and sim- and equally, I have very very low notes, yeah. and then they go. I could sing down oh. some mornings. If you middle C, I could sing in falsetto down to a bottom G. Which is completely useless, but I couldn't do it after I've sung a bit. I can't sing a middle C in in. That's because that's I tell you why it's it's that's the. It pain. sounds like. 
It's a pain. It's because it's it's at the point at which, in a way, the lower range is really hard because you have to. Yeah. It's where the 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 breath pressure you're using to blow air through the cords and also the muscle relaxation in which the falsetto kind of meet. And it's the high notes in a way at high tension, so it's slightly easier because you can yeah. sort of just do it. Do it over a long time. It's quite hard, but to do it like it's really easy. But to go. Oh, it's quite hard because it's so relaxed that mm. the vocal cords aren't touching to make that sound. They're slightly apart. So if you hold your hands slightly apart, if you're listening, not looking, the air is passing through them and it's the yeah. edges that are vibrating. And what happens when you hear a yodeler go, is the sound of the cords splitting and hitting and parting. <gasps> and so what falsetto does is completely keep them apart the entire time. And oh, then the right. pressure yeah. which you're using to push air through that is monitored by technique. And so why you find it difficult around middle C is because that's naturally where the the, the high part of your bass voice, if it's not trained like mine, mm. I go, oh, I can't really do it. So I go, oh, I have a big, a massive crack. But when I'm singing falsetto is I try and I've learned to negotiate that going through that passaggio, mm. the passaggio as they call it right as you go through middle c and so like down to you know maybe an a g that's yeah. kind of what you need midsummer like stream britain has a bottom g in it because alfred Della was basically a counter didn't sing much high but but it's totally normal to say oh i can't do middle c because it's it's sort of on the it's like you're standing on the edge of the diving board saying do i do falsetto or do I do yeah 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 and it, that's all it is and just knowing your inclination is to try and make more sound and then you go ah, and that's when you hear that again i'll have a pint please is what happens when your voice breaks you don't <laughs> yeah. know quite where you live yeah, if you yeah. just sort of take the pressure off and go oh, you know you can you can sort of nail it there you go oh and then you find it Wow. And then you have to move and <laughs> whatever. Oh, love it. Oh my okay. god, that's a future. That's like a... It's there not too late for you for that. That that's is lovely. the first thing I've done since December the 19th. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sounds wow, it's not, it's not an honor to hear it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's very kind of yeah. I really I really <laughs> don't listen to that. <laughs> Wonderful stuff, and thank you, Yestin, for giving me a, a small and short uh, singing lesson. Yeah, has he invoiced you yet for that? <laughs> yeah, he has. It's I'm very expensive. Massive, massive. Yeah. Have you been practising? Uh, yeah, of course. Good. every day. Good. Um, I feel like I didn't quite give it my best <laughs> when, I, when I, I sang to him. It didn't sound very nice, did it? I mean, that's kind of the issue I have. It's like, it is high but it doesn't sound nice. I felt like there was progression, though. After he spoke to you, definitely it softened, shall we say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can I just, I feel like, can I just give it another go now? Go on. I just want to show you, like, my range. So I've got... uh, Okay. Hang on. Yeah. Uh, Right, you you got a low note. (sighs) Okay, take a big breath. Okay. Oh my god, it's like having it's like Mariah Carey. I feel like, oh god, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. 
got to say, listener, this is like witnessing a breakdown. <laughs> oh, there's some overtones on that. So, there's some some lovely overtones on that. Oh, well God. done, well done. That's Thanks. a hell of a range. It goes from sort of didgeridoo to to oh, like oh. yeah to desperation <laughs> at the very top. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that wow. in, like, my nightmares. That's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's really useful for anything. Um, well, you can you can work on that now. I think he's given you a few tips. You'll be all right. Yeah. Hey, he was hilarious, wasn't he? He Very was so funny. funny. Yeah, we carried on chatting really nice. for about half an hour after, but to be honest, most <laughs> yeah. of it was not broadcastable, so... <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> it was great. It was great to chat to him. Thanks, Yeston. Was amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, yeah, if you want to hear more, yeah, Yestin, then go to the Patreon. We've got how much more? I don't know how many more minutes. I mean, it's nigh on half an hour. It's like having another full episode. So um, yeah, he talks about what all kinds of stuff. Um, oh, we talk about his checkered history playing the oboe, and um, <laughs> we talk about yeah. uh, all of our inability to commit to piano <laughs> lessons. Uh, what yeah, else do we yeah, chat yeah. about? There's some technical singing stuff in there. We um, talked about actual singing, didn't we? We did, yeah, we did. <laughs> I just felt we should leave that out because it was really off message. <laughs> yeah, so definitely um, subscribe to our Patreon and, and get it. I mean, yeah. £3.50 a month and you're getting four extra episodes. That is great, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And also you're helping us um, actually make this show. Yeah. We don't, we don't charge for this show. No. Nope. But if you want to help out by by joining that members club, then... Then uh, that really helps us because we, yeah. we got we got bills costs. We got to overheads. Pay for this. Oh we yeah, got overheads, we have. haven't we? <laughs> haven't we just? It may not sound like it, but we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Sounds low tech, but it isn't. Um, it's we've tough. had loads of correspondence this week. I don't know if you've what? seen Seb. Yeah, seriously, no. lots of people really? have written it, which has been lovely, and it, none of it has been really rude. So that's great. <laughs> um, but thanks so much for messaging and emailing. I've heard from lots of people. Yeah. I've actually got one here that I can read out yeah. for you. Shall I? Um, yeah. Had a lovely email and it says, "Dear Verity and Seb." Thank you for keeping me company whilst I fold and put away the never-ending laundry. It makes me smile to hear your voices and laughter. I so enjoy how you allow your guests to talk uninterrupted and in-depth about their careers, but also their difficulties and their passions. I really feel like we get to hear about the reality of working in the music industry instead of just what it is produced at the end. It's like a relaxing meander. I'm just about to switch you on now whilst I secretly clear out some unloved toys while the kids are aren't in the house rather aren't in the house with love neve isn't that nice well that's nice there we are so thanks neve thanks neve that is really lovely to hear and i've had some from people saying it's great but please don't mention my name <laughs> i don't know why yeah. i mean why are they so worried people might associate with this <laughs> i know yeah, we had a really lovely email but but they said don't read it out so can't <laughs> yeah read it out. but keep them coming Honestly. in whether you want us to read them out or not it, you know it's nice to yeah. it's nice to feel heard <laughs> i didn't see that email it's nice yeah did we get was it just one email we got did we get any more i had i had a couple of messages as well saying oh, yeah. nice things nobody said please stop talking which is great but, you know, all feedback is useful feedback, so if you want to say that, fine. They said they like the bit when the guests talk uninterrupted. <laughs> oh, OK, you're right. So basically they are saying shut up. <laughs> oh, OK. I didn't read That's between the, the lines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what we should do maybe is just ask them, like, ten questions, one after another at the start, and then just let them go for it for an hour. 
Good idea. And then at the end we'll say thanks. It cuts out. <laughs> cuts everything bad out of the episode. It's great. Yeah. Hey, Seb, did you have a good birthday? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did, thank Hooray. you. Yeah, it was my birthday yesterday. Oh. And uh, I'm 34 now. Oh, you lucky old thingy. <laughs> um, Do you feel yeah. newly mature and aged? Well, I, I do feel a bit more like that, yeah. I think mm. it's because... Um, I, I cut my hair, didn't I? So I, yeah. it's kind of, and it's all grey now. I just look like a middle-aged man. Really? It'll what? grow back. I'm going to yeah. look like David Ginola again. <laughs> One day. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will, but um, that's the plan. Uh, but no, it was good. I, I just kind of spent the day with uh, with Charlotte. Aww. And, uh, we uh, we had uh, some delicious burgers. All good. For lunch. Yeah. Um and we uh, we sort of went we were in our new house, sort of checking it out. We're not oh, quite great. moved in yet, but the kitchen's nearly done. We were just sort of there, just sort of, and we sort of went to pick out some colours to put in the baby's room and Aww. some nice things like that. And then we hung out with our baby, and then uh, uh, oh, you you sent some delicious cocktails to I, me. Well, I did, so yeah, I, in the post. So I drank yeah. those all last night. And, and were uh, they good? I've heard that they're very powerful. I haven't tried them myself. Really but... nice, yeah. yeah. I had a Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I had a Gin Sours. Gin yeah. Sour. Yeah, yeah. Gin Sours, that's like the, that would be like the, the green one. Apple Sours. Mm. There we are. Mm, they're good. It wasn't they're that nice. though, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't that. No, a bit more posh than that. And then uh, a Negroni as well. Yeah, which is the best? I think, I think Negroni. Mm, I really like classic. that bitter kind of taste. I mean, the Manhattan's quite similar, isn't it? Yeah. I guess, but it's that's a bit more like an oh, like an old fashioned. That's really nice. Yeah. Um, so they're quite oh. similar, but um, Negroni, that's good. I like that. Oh, good. And uh, we watched for your eyes only. Excellent. And, uh, which is uh, mostly a pretty terrible film. <laughs> and uh, I introduced the boys to Austin Powers this week. <laughs> oh yeah. Well. And I started it off. I was like, oh. Is this is this okay? I don't know. Is it appropriate? I don't know if it is. I think all the um, sexual references went over their head, which was lucky. Although oh, they did yes. like the fembots. Oh, yeah. what have I started? <laughs> cool social services. Oh um, no, God. So uh, cool. Uh, have you had a good week? Good fun. fun yeah, it's been half term. Been out, done lots oh, of yeah. walks in various woodlands and things, nice. <laughs> as, as is the, you know, the highlight, really. Uh, been trying to up my running. Went out this morning and it was oh, a yeah. disaster. It's like oh. I, no stamina at all. So, um, oh. yeah, I think maybe I've tried to do too much all at once. But Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll just there. try again tomorrow. Yeah, well. Sometimes that just happens, <laughs> isn't it? You just get a, a weird day where it just doesn't work. Yeah, totally. I'm hoping it was just one of those because I've been yeah. feeling quite smug, to be honest, and uh, <laughs> that all went out the window this morning. Never mind. <laughs> ah, don't worry. It yeah. will come back. Yeah. Uh, great. Well, um, guys, thank you again for listening. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, including all that waffle we just did, mm. um, <laughs> or if you didn't like that bit, email us and tell us to stop doing the waffle. Yeah. Or maybe you like the waffle. Who cares? <laughs> it's very self-indulgent the whole process <laughs> um, and uh yeah if it's your first time listening then thanks for sticking to the end um and uh what else if you liked it you can share it mm. somewhere on social media yeah tell a friend uh rate the podcast review it in itunes yes all that kind of stuff great and uh yeah. and we'll be back but again a- next week won't we yeah, yeah. we'll we be back next week, as we always are. Yeah. And uh, we will love to see you here again. <laughs> yes, we will. Somewhere on the internet. Take care, everyone. 
Bye bye. 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 <laughs> bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>